It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me is Mr. Odd himself, John Chalkowski. Hello, everyone. So, today, we're going to talk about good old GW. George Washington. He got that mountain named after him. Yeah. I'm sure, just like many people, you've always heard these tales of George Washington coming through Pittsburgh or... Maybe you don't maybe you don't know that he came through Pittsburgh. I don't know. It might be news to you. But we're going to talk about his in early involvement here in Pittsburgh history. And number one, how he was the only president to personally choose a spot which would later become a city. Two, we're going to read a little bit from his actual journal, which I can tell you from firsthand experience. Um you know, when you think of George Washington, you think of him as the dollar bill guy, right? You think of him as the, you know, you have a clear picture in your head of what this guy looks like and what he is. He has the wooden teeth. Wooden teeth, yeah, and everything. Um, but you don't typically look at him or think about him as a 21-year-old man with bright red hair, <laughs> right? Uh, six feet tall, uh just a different type of guy. You know, th- this time when he was here in Pittsburgh, he was not some kind of, um, you know, leader of the free world um, or president or general or anything along those lines. And to see how a man who got his first taste at leadership here while in Pittsburgh, it's interesting to see, like, kind of how that comes about. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about. So um, it all begins way back in 1753. So he's at this time 21 years old. Um he's like most people in Virginia at the time. Uh, there was not much work to be had other than just joining up the the army, you know, the military and becoming a soldier within the the British military system. Okay, which was pushing through Virginia. It could provide you with a home, money, uh security for your future. And John uh, and George Washington along with his brothers joined up the uh into the um you know the, the 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 war effort and became just a regular old militia member and soldier and nothing special about it other than the fact that he uh was kind of unsatisfied with just the ho hum life of a daily soldier in the seventeen fifties. Uh there was not much to it. There was not much real action happening or any kind of things along those lines. And he wanted uh he, he wanted to have a little taste of of what it was like to be out in the world and, you know, experience life, you know, outside of Virginia, which was tough for a young person in those time periods. And uh, he decided to approach the governor of Virginia, uh, a guy named Governor DeWindle, uh, with this idea that he could be somewhat of like a messenger or someone who could, uh, you know, lead a small group of people through the wilderness and uh, and deliver messages to people all along the coastline of America in the Great Lakes area. Uh, so he decides to, uh, after some trepidation, right, uh, the governor of Virginia decides to go ahead with this plan and have George Washington lead, along with a small group of men, uh, a, a missionary, you know, a mission to go up to Lake Erie and present to the people who were up there, the French people uh, who were starting to settle up there, a letter from the governor of Virginia stating that all people of French ancestry and of French uh, military domain to remove themselves from this place voluntarily. Please. 
Would you please go? Yeah, please, sir. Before we have to uh, annihilate it's time you. Time for you to leave. <laughs> right. So he decides to take up this mission, right? He uh, leaves Virginia, starts uh, coming down uh, to the Ohio River Valley, and uh, approaches what would later become Pittsburgh. Uh, and this time, still, Fort Duquesne was not built yet. It was still just the wilderness. And uh, he hears of this guy um, who is also a... Uh, uh, a traveler and an experienced uh, pie, you know, frontiersman named Christopher Gist. And he joins up with this guy and an Indian interpreter and along with three other men on horseback and starts just basically walking from P- Pittsburgh all the way to Lake Erie and back. And they couldn't go up 79. They could not take 79. However, they could have taken the Venango Path, uh, which was the Native American route that led from Pittsburgh all the way to Lake Erie, which today we call Route 19 or Perry Highway, uh, but then was known as the Venango Path, even during his time. George Washington, in fact, when he came through this area, drew a map, which is available now in the Library of Congress. And it's a uh, the cool thing about the map is you'll say, hey, this guy doesn't know how to spell anything <laughs> because everything on the map is spelled goofy, like Allegheny is like A-L-L-I. G A N Y or Monongahela. Don't even, you don't even want me to start spelling that. So, but the best thing about that is that's exactly how that information was presented to him and how he interpreted and wrote it down. Yeah, he's probably just writing it phonetically. That's, that's true. And that's the origin of all American place names and last names, family last name, your surname. Um, you know, it, it's, it's spelled the way it was pronounced. And there was no real correct spelling. There was nothing like an Oxford English Dictionary, you know, where he could reference Monongahela. It was just, you know, this Native American who's lived there for generations has now told me this is what it's called. I'm going to, to the best of my abilities, write it down on paper. And and George Washington did this. And that map features what would become Pittsburgh, the three rivers, the point, and follows his journey all the way down. Uh, the Ohio River to Beaver Creek, right? That's on the map. Pine Creek's on the map, uh, and many other unusual places, which we'll talk about. Because he first comes here to Pittsburgh, right, with that small group of people, and uh, climbs up, which would later be called Mount Washington, or at that time called Coal Hill. He called it Mount Me. Mount Me, <laughs> exactly. Um, and he decides to uh, write. This entire time, he's keeping a journal and a diary of day-to-day experiences. And uh, before he sets out uh, on his main journey, he does talk about Pittsburgh or the area located at the Forks of the Ohio. And this is a quote directly from his journal of talking about that. And he said, I spent some time in viewing the rivers and the land at the Fork, which I think extremely well situated for a fort, as it has absolute command of both rivers. The land at the point is 20 or 25 feet above the common surface of the water and a considerable bottom of flat, well-timbered land all around it, very convenient for building. So while it's not much, it's still technically a mention of Pittsburgh, uh, an early mention of Pittsburgh, and um, he talks about that, and that that quote goes along with the map that that he drew, and uh, he set off on this journey. This journey could become one of the most difficult and harrowing Experiences of his entire life. Revolution included. Included. This journey that he would eventually go on here, he talked about even late in life in the 1790s, talked about how it was the most important events 
that ever occurred in his entire life. And his, from his learning experience of learning what it means to be a soldier to, or what it, to what it means to be a leader. And through his experiences here in Pittsburgh, specifically Pittsburgh, uh, is what kind of shaped and molded him into the legend and the icon that we know him today. Um, there's more to the story when you start getting into his actual journal. So his diary is such a cool thing to read. And I, and I never would have ever said that before in my entire life uh to say hey you ever read george washington's diary like you know it's pretty awesome um i would have never if you told me that 20 years ago that i'd be reading george washington's diary i would think you're crazy and that i had zero interest in reading it other than maybe to just to read I, I mean i had actually no reason right other than well, yeah you have sports illustrated cosmo and then george washington's journal yeah mad magazine is what you know was yeah. on my mind so it's like uh it's just something you don't think about but it does exist the actual paper that he wrote on that diary is in the library of congress and you can read every single page and he kept a detailed diary his entire life um so now, you know, that you know, eventually years go by, right? I started wondering about Pittsburgh history and I'm like, well, yes, we know that he said that famous quote that I just read about what Pittsburgh looked like, but what else did he talk about in Pittsburgh? Is there anything else he wrote down in his journals that's interesting to know about or learn about? And what I soon came to discover is the fact that um the way he wrote is so good and easy to understand and it gives you a completely new outlook on who George Washington was as a man uh, that I never thought I would learn before. Just the way he expressed himself in those words and how he wrote. It's completely different. I mean, you have to think that he's 21 years old writing this journal. And and most people writing back in the 1750s, you know, it sounded like some kind of British, you know, politician or something, like very proper, very uh, lots of words, <laughs> you know, a lot of... uh adjectives and things that were unnecessary technically um but uh so when you read somebody's journal or diary it gives you a real outlook on who they were so I, i'm going to read to you a brief couple pages from his actual diary that um they talk specifically about his experience here in pittsburgh that he had here with christopher gist in the uh the winter of 1753 and uh this time he, he's he's journeying back right from that he delivered that me- so little backstory is he delivered that message. He got all the way there. The guy, of course, told him no, that he wasn't going to leave the area. In fact, he was telling him that he's going to come and occupy those say, very same forks of the Ohio that he was talking about just a couple months earlier, a couple weeks oh. earlier. So not only am I not going to surrender, <laughs> I'm coming down to that place and taking that over. Yeah, with a thousand men. <laughs> so go back and tell your governor of Virginia uh, that, uh, you know, go, go ahead and come and try to take it. Yeah. Cause that's exactly what happens. So this is December 23rd of 1753. GW says our horses were now so weak and feeble and the baggage heavy as we are obliged to provide all the necessaries, uh, that are the journey would require that we doubted much of performing it. Therefore myself and others, except for the drivers, gave up our horses for just the packs and to assist along with the baggage. I put myself in an Indian walking dress and continued with them for three days till I found there was no probability of their getting in or in any reasonable time. The horses grew less able to travel every single day 
and the cold increasing was very fast, and the roads were becoming much worse by a deep snow, continually freezing, and I was uneasy to get back to make report of my proceedings to his honor, the governor. I determined to prosecute my journey to the nearest way through the woods on foot. So he decides, by this time he's up near Venango, Pennsylvania, okay, and decides to walk back to Virginia. <laughs> That's literally what he decided to do. By this time, some of the people he was traveling with decided to give up and just not travel with them anymore. So it was, it eventually got down to just him and Christopher Gist. So what did they do? Wandering through the woods on foot uh, with just their backpacks filled with stuff. What, what did the other people do? They, well, I just live here now. Yeah, yeah, they would just settle wherever they were. That's exactly what it is. And he talks about some of these towns. He's going to talk about one here in his uh, diary, which is uh, the craziest sounding town name I've ever heard. And and I'll tell you where this location is after I read this brief little snippet here. I took my necessary papers, pulled off my clothes, tied myself up in my match coat, and with my pick of uh, a pack on my back, and with my papers and provisions in it, and a gun, I set out with Mr. Gist, fitted in the same manner, on Wednesday the 26th. The day following, we had just passed a place called Murdering Town, where we intended to quit our path and steer across the county for Shanapin's town. We fell into a party with French Indians who had laid in wait for us. One of them fired directly at Mr. Gist or at me, not only 15 steps away from me, but fortunately missed. We took this fellow into custody and kept him till about 9 o'clock at night and then let him go and walked all the remaining part of the night without making any stop whatsoever. That we might get a start so far as to be in reach of pursuit of the next day as we were well sure that they would follow our tracks as soon as it was light out. The next day, we continued traveling through the dark and got to the river about two miles above Shanapin's. We expected to have found the river frozen, but it was not. Only about 50 yards from the shore, the ice, I suppose, had broken up above, for it was drifting in vast quantities. So, Murdering Town is today's pleasant-sounding Harmony PA. <laughs> where in the middle of the woods, it's unclear where, you know, I mean, you just heard exactly what he wrote. So it's, he doesn't give you, oh, near, you know, Jacob Bush's house or something. He just tells you near murdering town, this guy shot at us a point blank range and missed. He considered that event for the rest of his life as if he was chosen by a higher power to lead the country. And that incident he uses as an example through his presidency as uh, he was the rightful chosen one. And uh, it was the closest he ever came to death. The story uh, some other historians have talked about that it passed through his hat or something like the bullet and just, you know, went out the backside and he was okay. Um, But you're hearing it right now from his own words. So that's why it's important to read uh, his diaries because you get the first hand, literally a first hand account. Well, that's why you don't go to Murdering Town. And that's also why you don't go to Murdering Town, yes. I mean, Harmony. That sounds great. You go know. there. You're right. Uh, that reminds me of another town in uh, Westmoreland County uh, called Mount Pleasant. However, the original name of that town was Helltown. Yeah, so that's the story for another day. Because um, there is more to that story. <laughs> um, Shanapin's Town. Okay, Shanapin might be a common name you'd hear around. Shanapin's cl- you know, Country Club or uh, Shanapin and other references here in Pittsburgh. But Shanapin Town was today's Lawrenceville. And the, the he's talking about crossing the river. He's two miles above Shanapin's town, which means that he's basically in 
I guess it would be East Liberty uh, or that general area, you know, on the r- river. He wants to cross, well, not East Liberty. I guess it would be up near Edna or Sharpsburg, really, because he wants to cross the river near Shannon's Town. So it's directly across, uh, you know, you guessed it, Washington's Crossing, <laughs> right? Or Washington's Landing. Uh, all these names, you know, that are given to that island near 40th Street Bridge in Millville. However, he did not cross across any kind of bridge or never landed on a place called Washington's Landing. Uh, he landed on a different place, and that's what he talks about next. There was no way for us to get over but on a raft, which we had to make ourselves, and we set about but one well, with only one poor hatchet. And we got finished just after the sunset, after a whole day's work. And we got it launched, and on board of it, we set off. But before we were halfway over, we were jammed up on the ice in such a manner that we expected every moment of our raft to sink and ourselves to perish. I put out my setting pole to try to stop the raft that the ice might pass by when the rapidity of the stream threw it with so much violence against the pole that it jerked me out into the water ten feet. And I fortunately saved myself by catching on to one of the raft logs. Notwithstanding all of our efforts, we could not get to the raft to either side of the shore. But we were obliged, as we were near an island, to quit our raft and to make it. The cold was so extremely severe that Mr. Gist had all of his fingers and even some of his toes frozen. And the waters were shut up so hard that we found no difficulty in getting off the island onto the ice in the morning. And we went to Mr. Fraser's cabin in Turtle Creek, where we met with 20 warriors who were going to the southward to war, but coming to a place upon the head of a great cunaway where they seen seven people killed and scalped, all but one woman with very light hair, and turned about and ran back. The fear of the inhabitants should rise and take them as their authors of the murder. Their report of the people were lying about the house, and some of them torn and eaten by the different hogs. But the marks that were left, they say, were French Indians of the Ottawa nation that did that. So he's going on to talk about... Uh, that incident where he, you could see briefly mentions falling into the river and going on Washington's landing is the sole basis of us calling that bridge Washington's Crossing Bridge, you know, the 40th Street Bridge, also Washington's Landing. Well, I was under the impression that he almost drowned there. You're reading right from the source. Exactly. So now Christopher Gist also kept a journal and also does talk about that same exact event because he lost some of his fingers and toes from frostbite. And does mention that George Washington was frozen solid practically and, and also suffered some frostbite from that incident. But that was it. It doesn't seem like Washington's too concerned with himself in that one. <laughs> he just He's goes more right talking on talking about Gist. And this is literally the page that was in that water, right? <laughs> like the journal that was literally on his back traveling with him. Like he wrote this that night. Um, you know, of, with uh, his one working finger. Yeah, exactly. Um, he goes on, and this ends his journal uh, entry here. As we intended to take our horses here and required much time to find them, I went up about three miles to the mouth of another river and met with Queen, Queen Alakawapa, who Alakwipa is named, named after, who expressed her great concern that we passed her in going to the fort. I made her a present of a match coat and a bottle of rum, which later was thought to be much better present than the two. On Tuesday, the first day of January. So he spent New Year's Christmas, New Year's Eve, and the first day of 1754 here in Pittsburgh. Um, Tuesday, the first of January, we left Mr. Fraser's house and arrived back at Mr. Grist's house, 
which was on the Monongahela River. I brought a ho- I bought a horse, a saddle, and the sixth we met seventeen horses loaded with materials and stores for the fort at the forks of the Ohio. And the day after, some families were going to settle it. This day, we arrived at Will's Creek after a fatiguing journey, as it was possible to conceive, rendered by an excessive bad weather. From the first of December, uh, day of December to the fifteenth, there was what one bay, day that it rained or snowed incessantly. And throughout the whole journey, we met with nothing but one continued series of cold, wet weather, which occasionally left very uncomfortable lodgings, especially after we have left our tent, which which was seen as a very bad omen. On the 11th, we go to Belvoir, where I stopped the day to see a necessary rest, and then set out on the arriving in Williamsburg on the 16th, and waited for the honor of the governor, the letter I have so brought him from the French commandant, denying his request, uh, which I beg leave to do my offering the foregoing as it contains the most remarkable occurrence that have happened to me. I hope that it will be sufficient to satisfy your honor with my proceedings for that. It was my aim in undertaking this journey and chief study throughout the prosecution of it with the hope of doing it. I with infinite, infinite pleasure subscribe myself, your honor's most obedient and humble servant, George Washington. So that's how he ends his journey uh, here in Pittsburgh. And it's literally just two, three pages long of the journey. But it's so much eventful things have happened to him. That he almost he, dies twice. Yeah, he almost dies twice. That it, He did continue this and like grew upon the legend himself as he got older and later in life. And, you know, people in early American history in the 1790s didn't have access to this diary. So, you know, you could talk about like, hey. I was almost, you know, shot in the back or something, and I survived. And kind of this legend grows along with it. And it's important, like, um, you know, when we talk about these historical figures, that you have to get them out of the legendary status or the fable status to where there are real people. You know, 21-year-old redheaded George Washington, real guy, <laughs> you know, walking walking from Virginia to Erie to back you know, through Pittsburgh, uh, all the hardships that that entailed, uh, different journeys you know that he went on, and uh, his later involvement in Pittsburgh, just history in general. I was going to say, does he later come back during the French and Indian War? He does. War? So he comes back two more times, uh, one of confirmed times. He, he'd probably traveled through the general area or not, but directly the city. He only comes back two more times. One was another time in the 1780s, and this time he stays with a uh, a guy who owns a bar. Uh, down downtown it was a real popular bar and it was at the corner of a would be today commonwealth place and boulevard of the allies for second avenue and uh that's where the bar originally stood and he uh stayed there the night and talked about just you know how nice he liked the area and he loved a good drink and uh he talked all he talks about that in his journal as well (laughs) um he does come back well, actually, not two more times, but three more times, because the next time he comes back is during Braddock's defeat. So he joins up, you know, this is just a year after this whole journey of him coming the solo mission, right, through Pittsburgh. He comes back, this time part of a larger army that's building up, because now the French have taken that, you know, kept that promise and invaded and occupied the forks of the Ohio. So he teams up with George, uh, General Braddock among Daniel Boone, who's in that same company, John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, who we talk about on a different episode, was actually still part of that regiment too. So, but 
the story goes that uh, during that battle of Braddock, uh, Braddock is shot, okay, and killed. Some rumor by his own men. Uh, no proof has ever really been found, other than people who were also in that uh, company did claim that event did happen. Regardless, Braddock dies along the journey back home, and in the arms of none other than a young George Washington, this time 23 years old. Uh, that single event, even though no one told him that he should be the one to take charge, he decides to take it upon himself and becomes a general in the army leading this restless expedition of kind of like this, uh, you know, retreating back to Fort Necessity and go passing Fort Ligonier and all those other forts going, you know, back through Pennsylvania. But um, he's the one who kind of got his first taste at uh, uh, a battle here and that event and that leadership role that he was just kind of thrown into is what jumpstarted his entire career. He later comes back, uh, this time as a prosecutor of the people of the Whiskey Rebellion. So, uh, and he issues what would later become the world's first, or America's first, presidential pardon. And that was in, uh, in uh, 1795. And he pardons everybody who was considered a traitor or put in uh, prison unjustly. Uh, due to the effects of the Whiskey Rebellion, which he himself set out troops to put an end to. <laughs> so, uh, But he soon realized it was a lost cause, and he decided to uh, pardon everybody. So there's another mention of Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania in that journey. But yeah, it, it, it's just cool to separate you know, fact from fiction, to hear it from the, the literal horse's mouth, you know, from the, his actual own papers. Read about who this man was and not just see him as the dollar bill guy, not just see him as some guy who can't tell a lie or what, you know, chop down trees or whatever. And, uh, you know, these these legends and tales that were attached to him and realize he was just a man, just like anybody. And, um, you know, he went through the same experiences and harrowing and almost deadly experiences here in western Pennsylvania. And uh, that how Pittsburgh and just how this whole journey shaped them into the man that he would later become. Yeah, I think it's important that Pittsburgh and this area help, you know, um, develop the father of our country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just amazing that, uh, you know, I hear claims all the time that George Washington slept here or slept there, you know. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the Fayette County. It's like, he slept here, so you should too. Oh, man, I was, I was giving a speech once and somebody came up to me and, uh, the North Hills, and they're like, yeah, George Washington slept in my house, you know, and was dead serious about this. Uh, and th- that's one of the things that you you see. It's passed out. Just because your house is old doesn't mean George Washington stopped there. That's number one. Number two, um, his, you know, his journeys were pretty much kept in that journal. I mean, it's uh, I can get a direct reference of where he was on almost any given day in American history. And so it's kind of good and easy to follow him. But it's... um. He did travel through Western Pennsylvania. So while your exact claim might be hard to prove, uh, it's not entirely impossible that George Washington didn't sleep in your old house here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> if your house is over 250-some years old. Or that's right. If you find some kind of place old. that's 250 years old, yeah, because uh, none exists Pushing in Pittsburgh. 300, yeah. Right, yeah. But uh, the blockhouse was even here when he was first here. So, uh, But it was here in the 1790s. There are places from the 1790s and 80s, you know, and that's when he was traveling through. So, But, uh, yeah, just goes to show you, seek out the information 
that and hear it from the source. Don't don't take someone's word for it. And go find that information. Find out the real story. You'll experience something really cool. I recommend reading that entire journal, at least the, the first, you know, that good month that he was traveling. There's lots of stories in there, including more about murdering town and more about all these other different journeys and people and the struggles that he had to go through. It really does give you a better understanding and a better appreciation for who the man would be. But for now, that's it for Pit. <laughs>